Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hello, everybody. We'll let everyone trickle in. It's going to be a great night. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'll just say uh, a few things on the horizon before we dive in with Alexia uh, are we've got first of the month morning prayer. We do prayer together. Jonathan Wilson, Hartgrove, and I uh, join together on the first of each month. The time's a little different this month. Uh, it's two o'clock Eastern time on October 1st, and our, our guest for morning prayer or afternoon prayer, I guess this time, will be Angela Denker, who is wonderful, done a lot of research on uh, the phenomena of Christian nationalism and just it's sort of the pulse of electoral politics and uh, especially in the evangelical community. So she's going to be with us. We're going to be praying for our country, praying for uh, our world. And we've got a book club next month. Uh, we're, we're doing this every month. Lexi, we've been doing this for like two years. We've had our book club going. And uh, next month, Lisa Sharon Harper will be hosting. She's been co-hosting a bunch of these. Uh, uh, and she'll, she, she's uh, got a guest, Amy Kenny, whose book is My Body is Not a Prayer Request. Uh, that'll be our book next month. Lisa will be leading that discussion. Have you have you bumped into that one, Alexia? Uh, Amy no, Kenny's book, so. My Body Body's Not a Prayer Request. Me neither. So I'm going to grab a copy of it. Y'all grab a copy. Join Lisa uh, at the end of the month um, uh, to talk about it with Amy. And the other thing that we've got on the horizon, we're always doing a lot of organizing, but there's... Uh, an execution next week of someone that I've um, uh, been in correspondence with. And uh, his name is John Ramirez. In fact, Alexia, I'll tell you this story is uh, I got to know John and his family a little bit, and he had another execution date that was set and his execution was stopped uh, really kind of at the last minute. And I, I, I was corresponding with him. I said, Hey, listen, can I send you a, you know, are there any books that you'd like us to send you? And I was thinking, you know, prayer books, devotionals or something. And uh, he was kind of like, I've got enough prayer books, but I've been learning origami. <laughs> and he said, can you send me some origami and craft books? And so I did. And uh, I've got this, I've got some of his origami on my desk with me here, which is both beautiful and kind of shows the humanity Um of folks that are so often dehumanized that are in jail and especially on death row. But uh, this was made by John. So we could be praying for him and we're always praying for the victims of, of violence. And, um, but in this case too, let's pray that there's a interruption to his execution again. Uh, but right now it's scheduled for October 5th. So uh, we're, we're, we're holding vigils around every execution uh, that happens in our country uh, in partnership with our friends at Death Penalty Action. So there'll be other 
much more positive things happening this month, but I wanted you to know that um, since it's heavy on my heart. And uh, that's what we're talking about, organizing. And there's no one I would rather have a conversation with about what it looks like to be Christ followers uh, at such a time as this than Alexia Salvatierra. She is a Jesus-centered, faith-rooted, Holy Ghost-filled organizer for justice. And uh, it's so good to be together. I mean, we're officially, you know, talking about your book since it's book club. This is your first book with, you know, that you did together with Peter Heltzel, uh, Faith Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World. So we're going to talk about that. But the other big news, you can tell us. I'll do the drum roll, Alexia. <laughs> we got another book coming out. Boom. With Reverend Brandon Rencher called Buried Seeds. And this is about the vibrant resilience of marginalized Christian communities. It looks at the base Christian community movement in Latin America and the Philippines. And it also looks at the hush harbors, which were the independent slave churches. And it looks at what they had in common. So it looks like looks at how to be a community, a Christian community led by the poor that changes the world. Mm. So faith-rooted organizing is a, we're going to talk about it. It's a number of strategies for faith-rooted transformation, but this is how you create communities of faith-rooted transformation, which Shane, you know a lot about because you've been doing that. So I hope it's relevant for you. You should, you know. I can't wait. I can't wait. And we didn't want to wait. And that's the thing is, you know, we thought about pushing this a month or two uh, so that we could celebrate the new book, but we thought, no, let's just we, we're going to celebrate Alexia Salvatier and her great organizing and wisdom uh, every month, but we'll do another celebration when the book comes out. We're going to do everything that we can to promote it. I'm stoked, and I, I hope everybody reads it. So you can go ahead and order the, the, uh, the new book, Buried Seeds, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. We'll certainly uh, make sure we get back to that. But for folks that are not familiar, and first of all, I mean, we're going to do this all in an hour. This is a crash course, uh, beautiful conversation with Alexia, but she is also an educator and trainer in all of this. I mean, doing, uh, you know, uh, like entire classes on organizing. So, uh, you know, maybe give us a little bit of your backdrop. I, I know that I know it, Alexia, but you've organized. You, you've organized with farm workers and Cesar Chavez. Yeah. You've organized around the the pe- uh, the people's power movement, all kinds of different movements, the Matthew twenty five circle of protection. So, give us a little backdrop of um, how this became important to you and why it is, you know, so central to your mm-hmm. faith. Well, I have a good friend, Shane, a few years ago, Reverend Renee Molina, that said to me, Hermana, you have the spiritual gift of justice. And my first reaction to him was, Renee, it's not on the list. And he said, he said, whoever said the list is closed. Music is not on the list. So I, I thought about that for a long time because I think it's always been true. I mean, all my life that I have felt injustice happening to anyone anywhere as if it was in my body. And I think of spiritual gifts as that kind of fire in the belly. When, you know, when Paul said, woe to me, if I don't preach the gospel, that, you know, everyone is called to be a witness to the gospel, but not all of us are evangelists. And evangelist is a person with a fire in the belly who cannot not do it. 
And then the purpose of that to me is not that you become a superstar, that the gifts are for the upbuilding of the body. So um, my call to justice, which is I have had all my life, is really about how do I equip and inspire the church so that everybody gives what we would say is their granito de arena, their little grain of sand, their peace, so that all together we become the body of Christ doing biblical justice in the world. So, um, but, you know, the difference for me, I grew up in a non-Christian home. I grew up in a home um, where it's a, we, I came from a mixed family. So from Mexico and Russia, although it was actually the Ukraine, They're, they've made that clear recently. <laughs> it was that part of Russia that went back and forth between being the Ukraine and Russia. Anyhow, so, um, and they were from the anti-church movements in those countries because they were socialists. So I guess the spiritual gift of justice goes back several generations. But um, so I, I, but I was not, even though I always felt justice, injustice deeply, I was not committed to justice until I became a Christian in the Jesus movement because I didn't think it was possible. That when I looked at the world where I grew up in a working class neighborhood, that I saw love and power in a working class neighborhood during a time in history mm. that was quite different than the current time. I'm an old woman. And so I looked at love and power looked very separate to me that the people who are loving didn't um, have a lot of power and the people who are powerful didn't seem to love very well, mm. very mm. much or very well. And so um, and that felt like a pretty hopeless situation for me. Mm. Mm. But so for me to know Jesus, um, even though with the people that I became a Christian with did not have an understanding of Jesus and justice. Uh, but as soon as I opened the Bible, as soon as I started reading it, I just saw justice everywhere, of course, because it is everywhere. But I was just so deeply moved by this promise that the, that the one who practiced sacrificial love in a redemptive way ends up winning, mm -hmm. that love and power are united in the story of the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the perfect unity of love and power. And to me, I was like, if this has any chance of being true, I'm going for it. Um, and then, and then of course I got involved in organizing starting in college. So <laughs> I'm 66, so we are talking 45 years of organizing at least, more than that. Um, in a lot of different forms, actually, Shane, you know, so some of what I've done is traditional community organizing, some you could call community development, social transformation, advocacy, but I did have the chance to be part of a number of movements, including the um, central, the sanctuary movement for Central American refugees in the 80s. And I was a missionary in the Philippines on part of the pro-democracy movement mm -hmm. over against the dictator Ferdinand Marcos also in the 80s. So those were both very powerful experiences when I was very young. I was a little young then, but I have read a lot about the Philippines uh, movement. I've been, and, I've been yeah, in I touch recently it. with the young activists who are fighting the current, uh, the grandson of Ferdinand Marcos. They had me uh, share those stories with them the other day. It was we were all crying because oh, I, I found wow. myself. I found myself because they all knew about the events that I was part of. Of course, they knew them as history. Um, and so I was able to bless them in the names of those who gave their lives in that movement. Mm. And, um, and, and it was really powerful. Wow. I'm sure that was really special. I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall there. But uh, yeah, I, so I mean, you, you talk a lot in all your writing and all your organizing, you talk about power and kind of the paradox of, um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of what's happening in our country right now is 
Christians trying to navigate what what it looks like to have power. And there's folks that are literally, it's as if they never heard Jesus say, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul, right? There's folks that are just, um, but, you know, kind of at the heart of the gospel is this paradox, right, of power. Jesus is sort of a, I mean, from the moment he's born as a vulnerable baby refugee till he rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse like Kings, but on a borrowed baby donkey, you know, kind of a parody of power executed on the cross. So it's this strange um, reorientation, right. Of, of what the power of God looks like and what, how we're to live in uh, in light of like kind of worldly power. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, mean, I would I, love to do that because let me talk, let me first go at it from a, in a very simple way that I think is it, people can grab onto easily. Um, there's power over, there's power within, and there's power with. Um, the gospel is not about powerlessness. It's about power with, or what we might call relational power in organizing. So, you know, we um, are not made to have power over. And sometimes that's the only way we understand power. So we end up making ourselves powerless so as not to have power over. But those are not the only alternatives. Powerlessness and power over are not the only alternatives. Jesus was about letting go of power over to have power with. Mm. And, and if we talk about power as the capacity to act or to influence other people to act, um, why would we not want to act in this world for the common good? Mm-hmm. When, when we see about God is that God wants abundant life for us all, that God wants the flourishing of the shalom of the whole community and the flourishing of the whole world. Why would we not use the power we've been given by being made in the image of the source of all power? Why would we not use that towards that vision? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, that's not the same thing as having power over. Yeah, that's good. And I, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of organizers use the analogy of kind of, um, you know, as we're organizing um, for the common good, that it's sort of like uh, boiling water, you know, it, it, it water doesn't boil like one big bubble or from the top down, but it, it, it begins to sort of steam, you know, and then you see little bubbles and then the water begins to boil. And uh, that's, that's kind of what movement organizing looks like. And it feels like that, right? It feels like there's something kind of stirring in our country. Um, I've heard the poor people's campaign say we lift from the bottom and everybody rises, Mm -hmm. you know, so this, Mm -hmm. this power from kind of the bottom up rather than the top down. And uh, it sure feels like we're, um, those who have had the reins of power are really um, that that's where the fragility is, you know, like th- this idea that we've got to be the moral gatekeepers. We've got to take America back for God. We, and, and so it really, it, it feels like a lot of this Christian nationalism really is about orientation to, to power rather than the power with those who have been mar- marginalized. It, it's, it's about control. Right. And right. Uh, yeah, that I, lo- I really love First Corinthians 12, you know, the vision of the body of Christ. And, you know, we all 
know that vision, which tells us that every part of the body is equally important and precious, which already is revolutionary. But if you actually read verses 24, 25, 26, it goes farther. It says, um, center, it says, give more honor to those who've lacked it. God's affirmative action policy, give more honor to those who've lacked it. Not so that we reverse, not, not so that we put on top those who've been on the bottom, but it says so that there would be no dissension in the body, but all the parts would have equal care for each other. That you don't get to that vision of all the parts having equal care for each other unless you intentionally center the marginalized. And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians 12. And that's what we see actually in the, in the birth of the deacons in the, birth of, in the book of Acts. Mm. So we actually see them practice that, which you don't really understand unless you understand one particular thing about the story of the birth of deacons. Do you want to, do you want to know what Tell me. This, yeah. this, what's, what it is? What is mind blowing about this vision of power with that is part of the gospel um, and how you get there. So in the book of Acts, everybody shares everything in common, which is all again, all by itself wild, Right. Like anybody who's ever tried to share all things in common. <laughs> yes. It's right. It's not an easy thing, yeah. but it was even harder because, um, and you know that well, but it's even harder because there are two groups in that early church with different levels of power. There's the, the Hebraists and the Hellenists is how we usually talk about them, but let's get, let's get down about this, that the, the um, Hebraists, the ones who are, are born in Israel, they're citizens. And the Hellenists are people whose parents or grandparents were born in Israel, and then they moved away, and their kids were born in another country, and then they chose to come to Israel. So what do we call people who are born in one country and choose to come to another? Mm. We call them immigrants, right? Yeah. So the, the two groups are really the citizens and the immigrants. Yeah. And the immigrants always have less power right? They'd have less power than the citizens. So the, the story starts out with the immigrants saying that their widows are getting less food in the daily distribution. So, you know, in normally when something like that happens, then the group in charge can either be nice or mean, right? They can be nice and they can say, well, we'll take a look at it and we'll see, you know, or they can be mean and they can say, no, you're wrong. Your widows are, are fine, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't do either of those things, Shane. Mm. What they do is they create a committee to be in charge of all food distribution. And if you look at the names, this comes from Justo Gonzalez, but if you look at the names of the people on that committee, they're all Hellenists. Mm. It says if the names of the committee are Lopez, Hernandez, Robles, all, not half, not half, not half immigrants, all immigrants. Mm. They have given the immigrants charge of all of the distribution of the food. That is 1 Corinthians 12 lived out. And what happens is the church explodes. Mm. Like all kinds of people, even it says, it's so interesting that the priests talking about the sort of desperation underneath people's desire, the Christian nationalism, the sort of desperation for power. Yeah. It says even the people who are sort of desperate for power, who are trying to get power over, they are somehow won by that, by that mm -hmm. power shift that no one's ever seen anything like that before. Mm. Um, and then what's interesting is the one power that the apostles keep for the, themselves, for the Hebraists, is they say, oh, but we're going to be the ones to teach and preach. You know, you guys can handle all the food, which is not irrelevant. 
<laughs> but, you know, we'll teach and preach. But then what the next thing, what's the next thing that happens with Stephen, who is one of the deacons? Oh, this is like, this is like a test. You're testing me. <laughs> it's all right. You know the scripture. And yeah, Stephen preaches. He goes out and preaches because you can't stop the Holy Spirit. Once the Holy Spirit is turning everything upside down, you can't stop it. So he goes like and he it. preaches. And because he preaches, and because he's an immigrant, he's stunned to death. Mm. The mm. others have been preaching, but they're citizens, so they're not stunned to death. He's mm. stunned to death because he's preaching and he's an immigrant. Mm. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Mm. After Stephen, the numbers just go crazy. Mm. Mm. So you see where, where God turns power upside down from power over to power with and the the god's kingdom just right explodes god's community god's kingdom so wow. so that's the heart of what christian organizing is about and so i want to i mean so this I'm, I'm guessing this idea of your new book is related to that right that the, the mm -hmm. idea that um you know the, the old the old proverb that that they tried to bury us, but they didn't know that we were seeds, right? I'm guessing that maybe it's it's a That's little the weak to that, That's right? The tell they us use it all over the world. It actually comes from a Greek poet, but they use it. We use it all over the world in every movement I've ever been in. And yes, the the base Christian community movement and the and the hush harbors, the independent slave churches, were a modern demonstration of what I'm talking about. They mm. were the poorest and most marginalized people leading their own Christian communities and doing it brilliantly and in the process becoming the spine of movements for justice throughout. Wow. So I've, I've been down there to, to El Salvador and it was inspirational. In fact, you know, I've told you this, that our, our friends, Ruth and Alex Arantes, you know, have been massive organizers down there. Um, and they, they've spent a lot of time up here, here in Philly. I've got like Salvador and art all over my house, you know, and stuff, but that those base communities have been, really influential in even our own imagination of what it could look like to form, uh, we, we like to say it the simple way, a village that we're proud to call home, right? That, that, that's kind of what we're trying to build here. But we saw yeah. it, you know, as we visited those communities. Um, so tell, tell folks a little bit more about, um, I mean, this is the, the kind of subject of your book, but what we can learn from these resilient communities of El Salvador and other places, the Hush Harbors, like, but what, you know, what, what right. are a few snapshots of, of you sure. know, what we, we, we identified five qualities in common hmm. between these two movements. Um, and the first one is the way that they are family, familia, that, you know, any, any Christian community has a family quality, but these people went to a whole other level. And I remember a couple little stories, you know, one was um, there was a family who came to the base Christian community meeting, which was always a mixture of Bible study and reflection on reality, individual reality, communal reality, political reality, the whole nine yards, you know, how does the word shed light on our reality? And then what do we do about it? Right. So, they came and they were very excited by it, but the base Christian community would move houses, house to house. And so the people who led that week said, we're going to your house next week. And these people were very ashamed. They said, we, you can't come to our house because there are holes in the roof. And they said, oh, well, we'll come on Wednesday and fix the roof so that we can have meeting on Friday. <laughs>
you know, it was very dangerous at a certain point to get involved with justice. And so what, what they did is they did a ceremony where people who had children that everyone in the community said, if you are arrested or killed, we will take your children as our own. Mm. That's family, mm. right? That's a different level of being family. Yeah. Right. The second thing that we saw was um, that they were leaderful. We call it participación in mm. Spanish, that they really took that First Corinthians 12 seriously. <laughs> you know, mm. that everybody's gifts were critically important and that the least likely person could have gifts that, you know, the whole community needed. So, again, I remember this story of Chino. That Chino was a major alcoholic, lifelong alcoholic, but he was also, a, you know, he was a builder, a contractor. Well, it's not closest equivalent would be a contractor. He was a builder. And so they were trying to build a school in their community. Um, they were pushing to have a school, but they were going to build it themselves and then push for the teachers. Right. And so yeah. they recruited him. And people said, what, are you crazy recruiting Chino? But the way that Chino talked about it is he said that the alcohol in the school had a battle in the school one. Mm, mm. So Chino stops drinking because he's building the school. But that's because the whole community saw the building of the school as a sacred task. Mm. And they saw Chino's gift of being able to build as a sacred gift. Mm. And they rotated leadership that different people, and they trained everybody that people could could rotate the coordination of the meetings. They could rotate what they call the animador, which is the person in the meeting who inspires, mm -hmm. rotated the animador. You know, so this real understanding that the body of Christ working together can make it happen. Um, the third one is this thing about um, paying attention, conscientización, that or what, you know, um, Dr. Reverend Wrencher called um, woke, awakening, being woke. But it's just taking a really hard look at reality, a really hard historical deep look, like not just what's happening, but why is it happening? And of course, that those disciplines in Latin America came out of Paulo Freire. He was brilliant yeah. educator. But to help people really think about the why underneath it, to think about, to develop a hermeneutic of suspicion, like why are people telling you what they're telling you? What is their purpose? Right. Mm. But then, but then to look at that in light of the liberating word of God. Mm. So that practice of conscientization and looking at the word that was true in the early hush harbors, that was true in the base Christian communities. Um, then the fourth one is we called it spirit duality instead of spirituality is because these were places where of intense joy. Yeah. The singing, the, you know, just the sense of the presence of the Holy spirit was just overwhelming is particularly in Central America. Um, I heard one story, and you will relate to this so deeply, I think, Shane, in terms of your, as a pacifist, is um, they, they heard about two boys who had been killed mm. because they were in the base Christian communities. There were young people sometimes who were in the revolution or close to the revolution, and then there were people committed to nonviolence, the majority to nonviolence, but, but all of them committed to justice together. So there was a story about two young boys who were killed by the military, by the para, paramilitary death squads. And they were a little distance away and they were in an area that was controlled by the military and the paramilitary. Mm. And, but the base Christian community itself was in what they call the liberated zone. It was controlled by the rebels, right? So um, they were going, some the base Christian community was going to, the, to do a funeral for the boys 
And the commander of the rebel area said to them, well, you know, you're you're putting your lives in danger. Here's some guns. And they said, oh, we don't need your guns. We have Christ. We don't need your guns. <laughs> and that kind of sense of peace and faith and was just they exuded it. They exuded it. Um, the Parisente ritual is one of my absolute favorite, that anytime somebody was killed, that they would read the names of the people that had died, and they would all say presente after each one. They're present. Yeah. The communion of saints, they're present with us. So just this very deep-rooted Pentecostal spirituality was was just at the core of it. And then the last one is we called um, faithful organizing because it was, they practiced faith-rooted organizing beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, but they also just understood that every part of their lives were part of the organizing. Mm, mm. You know, if you, you could organize as the base Christian community, there were specific things they would all do together. There were things that individuals would do in the different movements. They would go into the movements, but they were still, it was all considered part of the same call of God. In, uh, in Vatican, the Vatican II, they said that the definition of the church, and I just love this one, was to be um, the soul and yeast of the community. Mm, mm. So the faithful organizing was like, we go into the movements, if that's where we're called, but we're always the church. Yeah. We're always the church. Mm. And then people's willingness to risk their lives for reconciliation. That was part of this kind of pervasive unity of eternal life and abundant life of the spirit and the living out of the faith in the world, the just inseparable integration of that um, was shown in acts of amazing reconciliation that when people betrayed them and people did betray, right? People betray mm -hmm. out of fear and greed in those contexts. They would go after the people that betrayed them to try to bring them back, mm. to try to help them to repent rather than going after them to kill. So wow. it's this complete, complete integration. And we're talking here. I just got to say this. Let me be on a soapbox for just a second here is that, you know, often people that are more sort of liberal or progressive think of people who are more conservative as, you know, despising the poor. But people, you know, who are more progressive don't have that perspective. But, you know, I think of um, the Maslow, the psychologist Maslow mm -hmm. talked about these levels. Right. And he he said that um, people who didn't have their security and food needs met couldn't get to the higher levels of altruism and concern for the community that you couldn't expect that of them because they wouldn't be capable of it. Mm. <laughs> These people didn't have food. They didn't have security. And yeah. here they are giving their lives. Yeah. It's like, that's a very subtle disrespect. <laughs> God in the poor, isn't it? Yeah, so, Maslow. You know, Come on, Maslow. Just give the lie to, oh, they can't do it, pobrecito. You know, they're not able. Yes, they are able. Mm. <laughs> they are more able often mm. than people that have more from a worldly perspective. So when you were talking at the beginning about the subversive power of the gospel, right? You didn't use that yeah. word, but that is what we're talking about, is that part of it is this recognition that the, the people who the world sees as, as powerless are often the people who have more access to the power of God to transform. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
Well, y'all, come on. We're, we're, we're diving in deep tonight with Alexia Salvatierra and make sure y'all get the book. You know, if you're, if you're listening to this, uh, you can flash it again, Alexia for folks, but the, the new book comes out in just a couple weeks. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's coming out next month, Buried Seeds, Learning from the Vibrant Resilience of Marginalized Christian Communities. And we're getting the quick uh, trailer. We're, we're getting like a little teaser so that uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it when it comes out. But, um, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, recently, Alexia, you know, obviously, like on a lot of our hearts are the ways that... Um, some of the, the migrant community and the, the immigrants and refugees are, are, are really being used as political pawns and these, you know, busing people as if yeah. they're not just human beings with dignity made in the image of God, but they're just kind of dropped off and they're being used kind of to, to um, make a point or something, right? Like, and, and you've done so much organizing around that. I wonder if you have thoughts of like, what we can be doing right now. I mean, I think we all want comprehensive, you know, immigration reform. I, I would hope anyone that calls themselves a Christian um, would say we want to welcome people well in this country and we need to figure out a path to citizenship, a way to really advocate for dreamers and other immigrant families. But are there things that like feels like every week there's a new kind of slap in the face on this? And, and I don't know if you, you know, have some action steps of how we can support your work or other people right now. Like it kind of feels like we're spinning our wheels on immigration and, and a whole lot of other things. Tell me about, like, it. Tell me about like, it, Shane. I've been working in this, in this particular vineyard for a long time. Um, and, you know, this is, let me back up a little bit. Um, when we have polled, on a sort of a basic, relatively moderate set of prescriptions for an immigration system that is more just, more logical, and more humane, and more effective in the process, effective, logical, just, humane, that the vast majority of Americans support it. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just in 2005, there was a 5% difference between Democratic, Democrats and Republicans on immigration, right? Mm. I mean... It's we know what we want, actually, most of us, pretty much what we want. And and other countries do it better. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's impossible. Canada does it better than we do. So, you know, it's not possible at all. Um, but it so easily becomes a a way to um, build support by frightening people, by sort of stimulating that fear of being invaded, of being taken advantage of, of being right, that it gets used in those ways. So we were actually very, very close to passing comprehensive immigration reform in 2013. I mean, we had the votes, we had the votes, we passed it in the Senate. um, And we were in the House, we would have passed it, we had enough votes from Republicans and Democrats. But there were a couple of Republican Congress people that came to the Speaker of the House and said, it won't be good for us politically if we pass, if we solve this problem, it won't be good for us politically. And of course, they were prescient, they were right. Mm-hmm. It was, it's been very good for some people politically to stimulate fear you know, and this particular kind of fear, fear and misinformation. And um, um, so I felt like Moses looking into the promised land and backing out into the wilderness like another 40 years, Lord. And my only way of understanding that 
is really is that we need to go broader and deeper. Yeah. Yeah. That there's too many people that just don't understand much about the system and who don't understand even what it's like, as Henry Nowen would say, to move from hostility to hospitality as a mm-hmm. fundamental orientation of the Christian life. Like, we need to understand that. And yeah. we broadly need to understand that, that this, this sense of being frightened and threatened by the other is at the core of what is most destructive in our country. Yeah. You know, might, and might... I'm not saying that you can't be cautious about the other. I mean, I think it's 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 like we talk about organizing and, and faith rooted organizing in a way that is wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Yeah. You know, being wise as serpents is paying attention to the carnal and sinful aspects of people. I do not assume that anybody is safe. Honestly, I'm Lutheran. You know, I do not assume that anybody is safe. You know, I don't care if they're if they're intimate. You know, they might not be safe because um, we're sinners. But but having a, a balanced understanding to be why to be. Um, you know, innocent as a dove is to have an open heart, is to understand yeah. that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and moving through the world and often in the stranger, often in the least expected person, mm. right? That that person, the Holy Spirit, may be meeting you through. And so having that perspective is something that we desperately need to solve all of our issues right now, Shane. Mm. So mm. It, it's like the, like, um, you know, we've talked, I've often heard that African-Americans have been the conscience of the nation, but I feel like right now that the migrants are also the conscience of the nation, also trying to wake us up to this more complex way of seeing the world, to see the world in a way that is wise as a serpent, but also innocent as a dove. So that's my only way of understanding why this kind of suffering goes on and on and on is because there's a deeper root. It's not just about immigration. It's that migrants awaken us to how prone, how probable, how prone, how likely it is for us to live in a place of, of being overly threatened. Yeah. Wow. And I was just thinking it may be time for us to keep turning up the volume a little bit with some direct action. What you all might not know is that uh, Alexi and I were also troublemakers together and we got, uh, we got uh, sort of, Detained, I would say, I guess you could yes, say arrested, right, in the Capitol. But it was a powerful witness. You know, we went it there. Was a power- uh, it was powerful for the dreamers themselves. And, yeah. you know, when I talk about how what we need to be doing right now is broadening and deepening the movement, we call it building base. Like, yeah. we really need to build base. And sometimes you do these kinds of prophetic symbolic actions, not because you're going to win right now. We're not going to win right now, objectively. We're not at the top of anybody's list. There's right. too many other that people are more concerned about but because sometimes you do that to keep hope alive yeah. in the people who, right mm. and, and in that particular that, witness then god is with them because we stand up those of us who don't have to stand up who are citizens we stand up with them that gives them hope it gives them courage it makes them it gives them solace and consolation and healing and so right now i feel like that's what you know we have to continue also trying to awaken people who don't understand, who don't know, right? So we're always speaking to both those groups, that sort of slow, deep process of awakening people and engaging them. But I really feel, and I just need to say this strongly, that words are not what changes people around immigration. It's Mm -hmm. really relationship. And it's really a certain 
kind of relationship of joint ministry. It's when immigrant believers and non-immigrant believers work together in joint ministry that that's what shifts. That's what yeah. shifts the power dynamic, what shifts the understanding. So we do have to keep doing that. So you're not just doing actions for people. That doesn't do a whole lot. It's really working with people in ways that are a witness. Yeah, right? and the power, the power of that action in D.C. for folks that, you know, may not uh, have been a part of it was that we were um, – we were together. I mean, literally hand in hand with uh, young immigrant uh, folks, dreamers that were there and they had gathered dreams of, I think like 3000 um, uh, immigrant families. And we carried those dreams on little post-it notes and we read them out loud, but every pastor or faith leader spoke next to one of the dreamers. And it was a partnership. It was that power with that you're talking about. So they shared their stories we shared why our faith calls us to solidarity. And then um, people, courage looks different, you know, for, for in, in the risks that we can take because of where we're at in our life are different. Um, and so obviously the dreamers could not risk arrest, but they were fully supportive of the clergy doing that. So as we read these dreams, we were told to leave and we decided not to. And the contrast of the power was there, right? Because it was almost Christmas where we're remembering Jesus born in the manger as a refugee. And they come on a bullhorn, right? And tell us that we can't be in the hallway anymore. And we just started singing Silent Night. And that yeah. was that, it was, that was that, um, different kind of power. We're not going to yell them down, but we're going to just continue to sing the song of Jesus. Um, and it was, it was a really powerful witness though, wasn't it? And it can change the heart of Pilate, of Nicodemus, of Gamaliel, as well as the people on the ground. So, yeah. I mean, I feel like um, there's a deep weariness in the immigrant community. And, and, and I also feel this is a national issue, Shane, but a lot of this base building needs to be local. Yeah. You know, yeah. we spend a lot of time symbolically shouting at each other and it doesn't actually change people and it doesn't even encourage people very much. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. really the local relationships that make the biggest difference right now. That's a good and word. So, and yeah. so, but, you know, connecting across the country as we build locally is really the long-term goal. I think that's what base building is all about. It's so good. And we've got a few minutes left, y'all. There's um, if you're watching the live stream, some of you are watching the recording afterwards. But if you're if you're watching right now on the live stream, um, feel free to throw a question uh, on Facebook or YouTube or wherever you're watching. We're kind of uh, monitoring some of those. And we've got a, a great question from Joe on Facebook, Alexia, that says um, it's basically asking, like, can you speak about how we organize when both um, the church and society are kind of in crisis. So it doesn't feel like the church is always a base community, right? <laughs> Has this strong foundation. Or as you know, Martin Luther King said, the church is meant to be the conscience of the nation. But what, what, what if it's the church is part of the problem right now? And how do we, how do we orient ourselves to a spiritual organizing base that is faith rooted, that believes in the church. But uh, right now it can kind of feel like the church is uh, in, in, bound up we in, in the problem. That the biggest Christian communities and the hush harbors never represented the whole church. That 
you know, God raises up small networks. I mean, the church itself began as a small network (laughs) that, that we don't need. Again, it's that confusion around power that we need huge numbers to be powerful, right? That we need positions of high authority that we need huge numbers that power often works in these very subversive networks that persist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, God is raising people up in your context. I promise you, you just have to look for them. Mm -hmm. You have to identify them and it won't be the whole structure or the whole community or the whole institution ever. But one of those kinds of symbolic battles where we're losing a lot of energy is we're fighting windmills. We're fighting, you know, um, nameless, faceless forces. And, Actually, when you get down into it, God is awakening somebody's conscience in your context and troubling the waters. And if you find all those people, that, well, that's the heart of organizing. You find the people, you pull them together. They're at different levels of commitment or being or persuasion, but you build and you build and you build and it gets bigger and bigger. And that's, mm. that's what, but you start small. You always start small. And this is a moment in history where the divisions in our country are rigid. Yeah. And painful and hot, yeah. but it doesn't, there aren't people on the other side of the line whose conscience is being troubled by the, the troubling of the waters that the Holy Spirit does, that, that you can build those relationships that are transformative. Yeah. And Sarah on YouTube asked a really related question to what you're just saying, which is how do we de-silo people? And just a, a little bit more, you know, as I was listening to you, Alexia, as I, I thought of uh, Kirsten Powers book, um, Saving Grace. And one of the things she talks about is not just how divided we are, but we've moved from thinking the other person is wrong to thinking the other person is evil. And an over a really disturbing, disturbing, alarming number of both liberals and uh, conservatives think that the world would be better off without their political adversary. And a lot of folks are like- And they also think, Shane, I mean, as somebody who spends quite a bit of time on both sides of the line, because of who I am, I'm evangelical, I work at Fuller. You know, I know lots of folks on both sides of the line. And one of our oldest family friends is somebody who's on the other side of the line, too. I mean, people think the Hispanic community is all progressive. It's like, no, that is not true. So, (laughs) um, so, you know, as somebody who does that, I, I know that, um, that human beings are same, same sinner and saint, all of us are sinner and saint. And I know also that we are siloed in terms of the information we receive from the people that we trust. Mm-hmm. So if you're on the other side of the line, you're receiving information that is so profoundly different. You can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Right. And not yeah. all the information on this, our side of the line is pure either. Right. There's, let's be real here. Let's be real here. You know, there's. Well, one of the things that she talks about that that Kirsten talks about in Saving Grace is that more in common study. And it showed how um, 
wrong our assumptions are of the people that are our political opposite. And But the thing that was interesting is the people with the most incorrect information were actually progressives, folks on the left that had the wrong assumptions about their conservative counterparts. And um, she so kind of breaks down all the data. But yeah. Because I do spend time with people all over the place. I hear things. You hear things differently depending on who you care about, right? Mm. I was listening on NPR, which I listen to all the time, of course. Um, and I was listening to um, a show about an organization that works with this real tragedy and crisis in the Black community of, not, of Black women not receiving sufficient maternal health care, right? Real crisis. Really bad stats. A lot of being, a lot of working on it. So the interviewer asked the woman from the organization if they plan to expand, if they plan to involve other women as well, who have bad health stats for maternal health for their group. And the, without missing a beat, the person said, yes, we're going to involve Hispanic women, and then we're going to involve Asian women, and then we're going to involve Native American women. And what I had echoing in my head, Shane, is the people, like people I know in Appalachia who have mm-hmm. terrible stats for maternal health care. And we're completely not in the vision of the person who is talking, like they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And then we're surprised when there's racial resentment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like I've, I've been sitting today, um, it's been coming back to me a prophetic statement. I just want to share it with you because I think it's a really important around our common ground. Mm-hmm. This was made in 1992 by Emilio Nunez, who at the time was the first and maybe the only Latino who was ever the general secretary of the World Council of Churches. And he said in 1992, over the next 20 years, we're going to see increasing political democracy and increasing economic tyranny, economic consolidation of powers. He said, and that's going to be a schizophrenic experience because people are going to think of themselves as more free and they're going to feel less free. Mm. That's a schizophrenic experience. And he said, and that schizophrenic experience is going to create profound anxiety and people are going to look for security. And so they will be drawn towards simplistic answers and demagogues. Mm. And he said, and false religion will obscure this reality and true religion will reveal it. I just want to go on record by saying that there is an economic reality that we are all living through that is affecting us far more than we know. And it has to do with the juggernaut of the consolidation of economic power. Mm. And it's not that all the other issues aren't important. They are important, but, but that's our common ground. And Mm -hmm. the truth is that everybody suffers from that kind of injustice. Mm. Everyone. I I teach a course on globalization. I'm steeped in this stuff. You know, we have to, it's something that we have to recognize. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you know, I was thinking about this weekend. I spent the weekend um, with the community turning guns into garden tools and, um, you know, that work that we're doing, making shovels out of the guns. But one of the groups that was there was Hunters Against Gun Violence. And there's another group of gun owners against assault rifles. And I thought, how powerful because, you know, you can only move the barometer so far when we're in our in groups and our silos. But when you have folks that are gun owners and hunters that are also deeply concerned, I mean, the statistics are 70 to 80 percent of gun owners 
are deeply concerned about gun violence and want to see changes. So, you know, it's, it's just one more reminder that we, you know, in this organizing work that you're such an, um, such an amazing teacher on that the part of how we move things is by building a broader coalition, even with folks that we might disagree with them on 75%. But if we can find that common ground, it makes the circle so much wider. And we've seen that with the death penalty. I was just in Oklahoma and I met with a bunch of Republican uh, legislators that wanted to talk about the Bible and they were very sincere. You know, they, they're, they're rethinking the death penalty. Uh, because of Jesus's mercy. And, and that's where they, you know, but they don't, they didn't have a lot of progressive folks that probably you know, were, were ready to talk. So it was just, it was right. but, it, but it's, because, it was beautiful. it's partly because we get so into, we fall into the world's way of seeing the matrix, which really always one of the, one of the identifiers of the matrix is that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys mm-hmm. instead of the humility of recognizing that we are all sinners and saints. Mm, mm. Reconciliation is one of the key movements of the gospel. And reconciliation only comes from humility, from recognizing that you can't project sin outside. Mm, mm. Right? And that doesn't mean that you say that all sin is equal either in terms of its manifestation. If somebody's beating somebody up, you don't say, oh, everybody here is a sinner. You know, you try to stop. But what you recognize is that the person who's beating the person up is also being hurt by what he's doing or she's doing, right? Yeah. yeah. And we're all being hurt by the sin. Yeah. And so we all have an investment in healing it. Mm. And that our faith just calls us to that over and over and over again. And organizing, faith-rooted organizing calls us to that, to recognize that we all have. I use, often I use Isaiah 65, this beautiful vision, right, of abundant, of communal abundant life, you know, where everybody has what they need. And I'm like, who doesn't want that? Right. Come on. I speak to audiences of all kinds and everybody wants that. Yeah. And if we're clear about that, you know, then we can argue about strategy from a different space. Yeah. And absolutely. I see people transformed all the time. If people, we used to, we used to use, um, well, they still do. The evangelical immigration table uses a bookmark with 40 scriptures on migration and ask, you know, believing legislators to read a scripture a day and ask God for guidance. Yeah. And their scriptures aren't all one-sided. It's complex, right? But by the end, the, the bare minimum is that the person who is a legislator now has to see migrants as human beings mm. loved by God who Christ died for. And it changes Glory! everything. Come on. All right. We're almost out of time. But I want to say, you know, I was thinking tonight, um, I was out in the rain and I got absolutely drenched. But um, it, fl- it got a little flash flood here and, and this our, our drain was all clogged and there's what came up was all of the needles, the heroin needles and stuff in our neighborhood. And um, like this reminder of how outrageous it is that we're losing like 1200 lives a year to heroin here. And we got these needles everywhere, Lexi. So I think, you know, a few years ago, we started to uh, put them in jars and we delivered them to our mayor and to our politicians as a plea for help. The whole campaign was need a little help up here. Right. And oh, we're getting, we're, 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 we're I didn't at, know about that, but that's a great one. We're actually thinking of doing it again because we got them everywhere. And, and you know what happened, Alexia, it came from the kids in the winter, they were going to have a snowball fight. And the kids said, we're scared that if we 
um, dig in the snow that underneath the snow, there will be needles buried. And we're like, that is so messed up. Right. But it's what you talk about. If we weren't here, if you don't have that proximity, you don't, you don't understand the urgency of the problem, but there's also like a part of organizing that is just a way to channel our anger and our disappointment. But there's also just a role for joy. So, who could just freeze and shrivel because yeah, they're absolutely. so absolutely yeah yeah. And I mean, I think some people do just get exhausted, right? You just get so tired. So I wanted you to give us the last word, woo, of like the role of joy and hope and how we kind of keep that creativity and hope alive, like. Uh, when it and I, feels... I do want to say a couple things yeah. about that, Jen. I do want to say yeah. that that the sort of default in a lot of organizing is to come together around our anger. Nothing wrong with that. Anger is a force for change. Yeah. But that's not the only thing that can bring us together. What can also bring us together is our dreams yeah. and our vision and our hope. And that brings us together in a way that is actually healthier on a biological level than shared anger. Yeah. Right. If you're nothing but angry, yeah. not great for your body. But I love when you talk about your organizing that you use all these really rich symbols. And there, there are thousands of biblical symbols. And that's why in the civil rights movement, people said, when you sing, you pray twice. We don't mm-hmm. just shout, we sing. Mm-hmm. Because we have to draw on our right brain. It's one of the places that gives us life. Mm. Right. And mm. and we that we know that from our faith, we have to go deep into our wells to overcome fear with love. Right. Mm. And all the symbols help us. Yes. And they help other people, too. Sometimes they speak on a level that is so far much deeper than words. Mm. What an hour. Ladies and gentlemen, Alexis Salvatierra, get her books, Faith Rooted Organizing, get the new one, Buried Seeds. Buried Do you mind seeds. praying us out as we oh, I'd love go? To. Thanks for this wonderful night. Love you so much, sister. Love you too, sir. Dios Santo, 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 Santo. Holy God. What can we say? We come to you with our weariness. We come to you with our frustration, with our anger, and with our hope. And we know that in you, we find every promise fulfilled in your time, in your way. Give us strength for the struggle. Mm. Give us love and joy in the process. Give us an infilling of your Holy Spirit, a double portion, so that together we may have a taste of your kingdom. Mm. And help us to be humble so that we forgive and are forgiven. Mm. And in the midst of that, we know the peace that passes understanding. We ask all of this boldly because we love you and we trust you and we know that you love us more than we can imagine. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you soon. Hey, y'all, this is Shane Claiborne with Red Letter Christians, and I've got a big favor to ask of you. We want to get to know you a little bit more and make sure that you're getting what you need from Red Letter Christians. Uh, You know, as the the old saying goes, make sure we're scratching where you're itching. So I'd be so grateful if you could head to tinyurl.com slash rlc-podcast. It's in the show notes. And take five minutes to complete a quick survey for our podcast listeners. That's you. Thanks so much for listening and helping us bring more of what you love. 
I'm honored to be building a better world together with all of you. Hey, y'all, this is Shane Claiborne with Red Letter Christians, and I've got a big favor to ask of you. We want to get to know you a little bit more and make sure that you're getting what you need from Red Letter Christians. So I would love it if you would head to tinyurl.com slash RLC dash podcast. It's all in the show notes. And take five minutes to complete a little survey from you so that we can make sure that you get more of what you love. It's just an honor to be building a better world with all of you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.